welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. At the time we are recording this podcast, it is almost four months since the war in Ukraine began. Fighting is raging in eastern parts of the country, and a race to get Ukraine military resources is on as, as Russia continues to make limited territorial gains. While the most severe consequences of the war have been felt by the millions of Ukrainians who have had their lives upended or destroyed, Europe too has been shaken by the return of large-scale conflict. Putin may have been gambling on a divided West, allowing him to achieve his goals in Ukraine quickly, but a united front quickly emerged, creating the most powerful sanctions package against a state in recent history, as well as donations of large amounts of military equipment. But was Putin right? Will cracks within Europe and the West generally emerge as the conflict drags on? Will the citizens of Western countries facing substantial increases in the cost of living continue their support for Ukraine or seek to bring the conflict to a swift end? To talk about this today, I'm joined by a guest that some might find surprising, but who was on the ground in Europe in February 2022 when these events were taking place. I'm pleased to introduce Gerald Butts, who many of you will know as the former Principal Secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Today, he works as vice chairman and as a senior advisor at Eurasia Group, where he advises on geopolitics and risk management. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here, Stephanie. Just before we begin, actually, do you mind just saying a little bit about what you do now to just kind of contextualize these comments that we're making today? Because I think a lot of you will remember you very much for your role in Canadian politics, but we want to talk to you about your, your current role at Eurasia Group. Fantastic. Obviously, there's some overlap with some of the subject matter that we had to deal with in my previous line of work, but we advise a wide variety of private sector clients, mostly, well, they're about half investors and half global corporates with large supply chains that span around the world on how they manage geopolitical risk. And obviously, that has become a good for us, but bad for the world, a much bigger business in the last couple of years. Yeah, the, the supply chain is, we could probably do like a whole series just Definitely. on the supply chain. So supply chain yeah. is actually an inside joke in my house. Jody and I, every time <laughs> there's a mistake or a kid screws up, we just look at each other and say supply chain. Supply chain, exactly. Well, yeah. Okay. So you were actually at conferences. I think you were actually at the Munich Security, Munich Conference, Security Conference, right? When this was kicking off and I was, I was following your commentary on Twitter because you, you had such a unique perspective. Going back to those days in February and the opening weeks of the conflict, we really did see European states come together in ways that, that no one, I think, had really anticipated, including, I think I was bravely tweeting about how the West would never do the things that it would end up doing about 72 hours later. Again, for, from your perspective, why, why do you think this actually happened? Why did we see so much unity, I think, in the West, but particularly Europe, in those few opening weeks? Well, it's a great question. And of course, you alluded to the the real trillion dollar question in your opener, which is how long will it last? And I look forward to talking about that. But the, the short answer to your question, Stephanie, is the Russian army has a way of concentrating the mind. And you had Putin made a, a miscalculation strategically of historic proportions, in my view, that he had a new chancellor in Germany. He had a tire fire at 10 Downing Street. He had a president in the White House who he thought was kind of a doddering old man. And France, he, who knew maybe he could deal with France if you're Russian. That's the way he looked at the world. And all of those things turned out to be wrong. At one point during the Munich Security Conference, I was having dinner with a very senior German official who said to me, so let me get this straight. We're the new SPD government of Germany, and you want us to raise a big army, march through Poland and fight the Russians. 
And that's kind of the, that was kind of the mood in Europe. I think that at that moment, and hopefully we can get into this topic as well, the thing that was underappreciated was the disruption that would be caused by the, the invasion to the global food system. And I think that that is, in the midterm at least, maybe the most pernicious global effect of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think everybody was pleasantly surprised in the first few months. I think the Europeans even surprised themselves. And of course, there are two alliances. There's the intra-European alliance, and then there's the transatlantic alliance. And both turned out to be a lot tougher and more cohesive than the Russians accounted for. Right. Okay. I definitely want to get into all those topics that you just brought up. Let's get into that. Because I think We've also seen a series of mood swings. I think, again, I just love talking about how wrong I was on this podcast. But, you know, I think there was a general understanding that Ukraine might be able to last 72 hours, maybe a week, that the Internet would would be conked out pretty quickly by the Russians. And then that didn't happen. And I think by March, there's this then kind of huge optimism that actually, no, look, we can we can defeat this, that Ukraine stands a chance and maybe even it can get its pre-2014 territory back. And now we're kind of swinging back to, I don't want to say pessimism, but like, I think maybe a realization that this conflict is going to be long, it's going to be brutal. So what is your take of the mood in Europe right now, bearing that I really want to talk about these kind of energy and specifically food issues that you've already brought up? Sure. Well, I'd characterize the mood as very anxious. I just got back from what I was hoping would be really just kind of an energy state event, the energy transition tour of Europe. I was in Amsterdam, Oslo, Berlin, and Paris, and talked to a lot of very senior people in both the private and public sectors in all, th- all four cities. And I think what you're feeling now, what you're, what you're perceiving now is correct, that there's a bit of a sobering up going on about what the relative military capabilities of both sides. I think if there was one thing that I heard almost from everybody, but in particular in Berlin and Paris, is that they're worried about what this looks like with the Republican Congress and a potential second term for Donald Trump. And this is maybe one of the areas where my previous work overlaps with my current work. But I've said this before, but I think the most salient fact of the Trump presidency, at least for American allies, is that it happened. And as a consequence, if you're in Paris or Berlin or wherever, London, Ottawa, you've got a plan for it happening again. And when you're planning for that, potential, that eventuality, while you're fighting a war effectively, or at least creating the supply chain for the Ukrainians to fight a war with Russia, it takes on a certain, a much greater urgency than it would have if the only thing at stake were TTIP or CETA. So you've got a bunch of policymakers in Europe thinking about getting left holding the bag for a fight with Russia without the Americans around the table. And that's, I don't know if we're getting back to the days of the U.S. being the the so-called arsenal of democracy, but certainly it's been the U.S. that has provided the overwhelming amounts of aid. So more than anybody else combined. So if if Trump 2024 happens, which admittedly would still not mean he'd be in office until January 2025. But yeah, so the concern is just anxiety really about the U.S. kind of like here. It's anxiety about the U.S. from a geopolitical perspective and real anxiety about the short term, the energy situation. But I think everybody's putting a brave face on how quickly the energy transition can happen. And the plans that have been released by think tanks in all parts of Europe are designed to give people the confidence that they can expeditiously exit dependence on Russian fossil gas. But policymakers don't think it can happen in the short term, in my experience. 
and if the Russians want to shut off the gas lines at an opportune time, sometime between now and the end of the year, or sometime next winter, Europe will be in a tough spot. Right. We're already seeing Germany, which is kind of tried to lead itself as green energy champion of Europe in a lot of ways, they're saying that they're going to restart their coal plants. Yeah, it's um, yeah I know it is because they shut down their nuclear plants and, and things like this. And, and now and they've been buying a lot of their energy, I think, from France. And now they're doing this. You said that it's not. So you, you're suggesting here that there, there are some plans on paper for Europe to, to survive, but they're looking at a pretty long, hard, cold winter. Yeah, they are. I, I, I think that one of the things mitigating in their favor is they've been very successful in filling up their reservoirs. So they, they have more gas than they customarily do this time of year. But it's still very, the, the problem with plans to change complex systems, and this is true of electricity, it's true just about anything, merger and acquisition of major companies, is as Toe Blake used to say, as Toe Blake famously said, we have a better team on paper, but they play the games on ice. And that's a very like, good saying. And when you're trying to change something that big and complex, you can't account for all of the unexpected events that would happen. So there's an explosion at the largest LNG in the United States where LNG is taken from pipelines, super chilled, put on these giant ships and sent around the world. It's 20% of US exports offline, at least I think until July 17th. Stuff like that's going to happen all over the world. And it's not a nefarious thing. That's just the way the world unfolds. And if you're depending, if your plan depends on none of that kind of thing happening, your plan's not going to work out. Do you think we're actually going to be looking at a system of rationing in Europe? I don't know. I think the, the unknown is whether Putin will play that card. Because there, there's a mix of opinion in Europe, whether he is holding that card in abeyance, knowing that it is the most valuable one he has to use as, at an opportune time. That's on one end of the spectrum. And then at the other end of the spectrum, his famous, and he tipped his hand a little bit about this in my view, that Davos style conversation he had where he revealed to the world his aspirations to be Peter the Great. And that caught everybody's attention. I thought one of the most interesting things he said in that interview was that he thought that Europe would eventually come back into the open arms of the Russian energy sector. So there were a lot of European policymakers who took that as a sign that he's not going to shut off the gas next winter, that he still sees it as a long-term relationship and is therefore wanting to use it at an eventual bargaining table about the conclusion of the war. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, both good and bad. I mean, it's, like it's hard things. to know. Yeah, like mostly I, I don't really I'm like, well, I would like Europe to have energy. But yeah, I, I, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if that happens going forward, something to, to definitely look out for. And, and just one more thing about the, the energy piece, but it's it's a really important one. There's a lot there. There are many opinions on what this means for the, the European Green Deal, the decarbonization strategy in Europe. I have no doubt, and all of the people who really know this topic that I talk to a lot have no doubt that this will actually expedite the transition in Germany, but in Europe, but it creates a real short-term problem. So that's the, uh, the German government is a good example, but you could use the French as well. The German government gets elected thinking that they're going to have to execute this very complicated energy transition strategy to get Germany uh, out of the fossil fuel business. 
But then they, when Russia invades Ukraine, they realize they have to do two equally complex transitions. One is to still get Germany out of fossil fuels. But in the interim, they've got to replace a lion's share of the fossil fuel they currently use, the one that's most difficult to replace being gas. And there's a lot of misinformation about what gas is used for in Germany, because in North America, we think of it as a, a source of electricity. In Germany, it's all most of it is used in the industrial sector. So to make chemicals and cement, and it's not, it's a very complex transition is my point without boring your listeners of the details of which feedstock is used for what industry and which launder of Germany. You can't just flip the nuclear plants back on and therefore use less gas. You could turn, theoretically, you could turn the nuclear plants back on and not need as much coal, but that's a different story. And these I, things are all getting mixed up in the North American marketplace. Of that's ideas. really interesting. I, I have to say, firstly, our, I, I know for a fact our listeners are here for the exceptionally nerdy details. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's why this podcast exists. Well, I'm here for you, Steph. I'm here for you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, no, that is really interesting. But I mean, I guess that then puts your comments about Putin, this idea that, that Europe will come back to this kind of fossil fuel Russia energy system is probably wrong in the long term then. Oh, I, I think he's totally wrong. And and. I think one of the reasons he's acting now is he knew he was at his maximum point of leverage. Interesting. That it seems to me that he was taking the European energy transition pretty seriously because he knew that every year from now, his leverage over the energy system would be less and less and less. And in particular, consequential places like France, uh, like Germany. On the other hand, you could argue that he thinks that this climate change stuff is all nonsense and people will come to their senses once they have governments that aren't ideologically driven. This is his worldview, obviously not mine. And therefore, there's going to be a long, eventual happy marriage when the Europeans forget about the Ukrainians and see them as the Russians that he's always believed them to be. That's really interesting. So thanks for that. But if, if I may, what I would like to talk about now is the other aspect, the other crisis that's kind of yeah. right in front of us. If, the, if energy is kind of on the horizon, the, the thing that's right in front of us now is is the literal starvation of millions of people, which is, is pretty imminent by all accounts. What are the discussion in around the world in Europe about food security right now? Maddeningly slow starting, in my view. I was stunned, frankly, and, and maybe it's because I'm a Canadian who's half Ukrainian and know enough to be dangerous about things like commodity markets, but, and we obviously have such an important agricultural sector here that I've learned a little bit about it over the years, but, I was stunned at how little focus was put on at the Munich Security Conference. There was a lot of talk about Ukrainian readiness militarily. There was a lot of talk about energy. There was a lot of talk about the topics we've just discussed, the cohesion of the Western alliance, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody was talking about food. And it was kind of stunning to me because the stats are probably well known now, especially to your nerdy listeners. But Ukraine and Russia play an outsized role in the global food system, especially for staples like uh, sunflower oil, and most importantly, wheat. And not only do they play a huge role in bilateral trade, but they about 50% of the world food programs, wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine. So if those supplies get disrupted, and they have been already, but if they mean if they continue to be disrupted, we've got a really important and difficult to solve short term problem. That short term problem is two things. One is the humanitarian 
catastrophe that you described where, and I will plug a landmark study we did at Eurasia Group on this topic called Food Security in the Coming Storm, which came out about a month and a half ago. And unfortunately, the worst case scenario seems to be materializing, uh, where immediately you'll see the poorest people in the world who are most food, have the biggest food, per, the most food precarity, will just lose access to basic staples like wheat and edible oils. And that will generate famine events, starvation events that you were uh, describing at the outset. Now, I don't want to sound callous, but it's not that that causes political instability. Because if you're in a place where you're facing starvation, you've already given up on politics. It's you're kind country. of just focused on survival. Exactly, exactly. It's the countries where in developing countries, generally people spend somewhere around 50% of their disposable income on food. In a country like Canada, we spend about 10% of our disposable income on food. So we will rightly complain about how much the cost of bread and pasta and everything's going up at the grocery store. But for a family in Cairo, it means that their food might not be available. And if it is available, it will be at a price that they can't afford. So the worrying scenario is countries in where there's a big middle class that's really vulnerable to food price hikes and food scarcity, that it causes a lot of disruption. And as you've given your area of expertise, this was one of the principal causes of the Arab Spring. In big countries like Egypt, I spend a lot of time thinking about Egypt and Tunisia in particular. Egypt is the world's largest importer of grain, and it produces zero grain in its own borders. And all of its imported grain comes from Russia and Ukraine. Right. So a, a kind of recipe for, for instability at, at the Absolutely. best of times. And, and certainly right now, you, you mentioned that there's very little discussion of this, at least at the start of the conflict. Are, we're ser- starting to see it now. Yeah, I think the, the t- it's picked up. But the challenge is, uh, I just interviewed for Eurasia Group audience, uh, Earthrin Cousin, who was President Obama's ambassador to the World Food Program. And it's The way she explained it to me is not only is there a a staples problem, but there's a big fertilizer problem. And farmers were already facing historically high fertilizer costs because of the cost of natural gas. All of these things are connected, right? This is one thing you find out that all this stuff is connected. It brings us back to supply chain. And it brings us back to supply chain. And most of the fertilizer used by Africa is created in countries like Ukraine, Russia, and and Belarus. So it's all connected. Uh, Planting season is now. You can't stop the world turning and say, wait till we get our shiitake together and then we'll plant our crops in West and East Africa. Planting season is May and June. If those crops don't go in, if those seeds don't go into the ground, they don't bear crops. And if those crops don't come up, people are going to starve and other people are not going to be able to afford their groceries. So it's a really harrowing scenario. So it's not just sunflower oil. It's not just flour and wheat. It's presumably all kinds of crops that need fertilizer, right? There has been some talk. There's supposed to be talks. I think I should say we are recording this on June 22nd, but talks between Russia, the United Nations, Ukraine, and Turkey. Is, is, do you think that's just talk? Is this just a, a stalling tactic? Or do you think that there's the possibility that we could see 
you know, the shipping, because this is my understanding and, and admittedly as a non-expert, but that you have the challenges that all this grain typically moves by ship. Ukraine yep. has mined its harbors to prevent Russia from coming in. The concern is if it removes those mines that Russia will come in with its own mines or yep. potentially could come closer. And, and there's not enough rail capacity to actually bring that grain out in time. It's probably going to have to be some kind of shipping. So it's, do you think that there's any potential solution here? Well, there's definitely technically a solution. The issue is whether it's a solution that can be abided by all the parties involved. And I certainly understand where the Ukrainians are coming from. Obviously, again, I'll repeat, I'm half Ukrainian, so I'll minimize the number of I'm a quarter who... Ukrainian, so we can... <laughs> there's there's a large Ukrainian contingency exactly. here in this podcast. The obvious, right. obvious people will say, it. I'm not making normative judgments here. I'm making analytical ones. Right. We're talking about Odessa, right? So if... The, the Ukrainians have done a logical thing and they've mined the, the Black Sea around the port of Odessa so that the Russians can't just march it. That's what you do when you're being invaded by an expansionary power on your border. And the Russians are now saying, well, if you just remove all the mines, we'll let the ships go. If you're in Vladimir Zelensky's shoes, I'm not sure you take that argument very seriously. So when you're just thinking about the local dynamics there or the bilateral dynamics, the war dynamics between Russia and Ukraine, you can kind of understand where the Ukrainians are coming from. The question, though, is, and this gets into the information war, which I think we would enjoy spending some time on, I bet, and who's winning it where. It's obvious the Ukrainians are winning the information war in the West, right? They have public support that has really driven the cohesiveness of the transatlantic alliance and the intra-European alliance, that even politicians who don't think they should be all in on the Ukrainian side are afraid to say so publicly for risk of being burned in effigy in their town square. So the Ukrainians have decisively won that battle for the airwaves in the West. They have not won the battle for the, or we have not won the battle for the airwaves and emerging markets. And in particular, I had another senior colleague who just had his first, his head of state do an Afri a series of bilateral visits in Africa. And one very prominent African leader, as they sat down, said, I just want to thank you and your European colleagues for teaching me about this country I'd never heard of six months ago. Right. So they're not necessarily... You know, understandably, they're not necessarily focused on the yeah, political absolutely. dynamics. They're concerned about just getting food. And exactly. they don't necessarily care where it comes from, just so long as it gets to the plates of the people in their country. That's right. And it, and it confirms some of the uh, most negative biases people have about Western powers in the developing world. That you people didn't give a damn when this was Syria. But now that it's 44 million white people in Europe, it's a big deal. And I don't subscribe to that, obviously, but that I can certainly... You can empathize uh, with that view. I can understand where it's coming from. Absolutely. And I think there's this unhelpful dynamic that has developed in the West. And if there's one thing I would be critical of the Biden administration is for fostering this as a, a new kind of war of the world. So that this is going to be the world's autocracies against the world's democracies. The problem with that argument is the biggest democracies in the world aren't on our side. And you're referring to India... Yeah, and even including our erstwhile NAFTA partner, Mexico. Brazil's kind of on the fence. Indonesia. So I, I think if you're going to force people to choose sides, you better know what side they're going to be on before you force that decision. And a dynamic is developing in, the, in emerging markets where the Russians, aided and abetted principally but not exclusively by the Indians and the Saudis, are winning the propaganda war. 
So it's a very easy argument for the Russians to make that it's the sanctions causing the problem, not the war. And we just have not had an effective counter to it. So you've already mentioned India and Saudi Arabia, but who else should we be thinking about in this global picture? Well, the the biggest country, I think, of course, uh, or the country about which will feel the longest lasting effects of the war other than Russia and Ukraine themselves is China. That there's, it's kind of fashionable to debate in the press in the West about whether China is on um, Russia's side or not. Spoiler alert, China is on Russia's side. <laughs> they are just trying to figure out a way to be diplomatic about it. But is, is it fair to say that? Is, is China on Russia's side or is China on China's side? China is always on China's side. And right. Like most countries, to be fair. Uh, and China is uh, has decisively and consistently and over a long period of time seen the relationship with Russia as primary um, for a whole bunch of reasons that we don't have time to go into here. But in the short term, the Chinese could turn out to be, the midterm, I should say, five to seven years, the Chinese could turn out to be the biggest winners of this whole thing because they could end up being one of two, along with India, very large economies that have access to Russian resources. And at present, they're getting them at a cut rate. Right. I, yeah. And, th and that makes sense. But I guess that's where I would push back and saying, well, is this like really about like allyship or is this really about China seeing opportunity or both? Yeah, I, I think it's both, uh, Steph. I, I, I really do. I think that I think that China sees its long term interests in Asia. Absolutely. For obvious reasons. And as far as Russia goes, I think long term, this is why if, you know, climate change hasn't reduced us to a smoldering rubble and we're still around having talking about this period in 500 years, then this will go down in history as one of the greatest strategic errors in the history of geopolitics for Vladimir Putin, because he's created very limited optionality for Russia in the future. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think that's right. Uh, but when you say like, like, China is supporting Russia, and I, I agree, like, I mean, if there's you know, I mean, I always think like, well, what does support mean? But that that is actually the question. What is support in this case? Because we've seen, it seems to be the case, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that China is kind of abiding by Western sanctions. They they don't want to to be seen as openly violating those sanctions. We don't, I don't think that they're providing anything in terms of like, the, the kind of equipment you would need to for Russia to immediately resupply its say its advanced targeting systems uh, like or chips or things like this. And the biggest thing that they seem to be doing is buying cut rate oil, which is definitely giving Russia money, which is which is important for them. But beyond that, is is there like what should we be concerned with here? Well, I think I, I would sort of flip that on its head and say China has not been a participant in the efforts to sanction Russia. Uh, let me put it that way, that they are certainly not active discussants in uh, everything from you know, cutting uh, Russian commercial interests out of the international payment system, uh, all the way down to mundane things like they're, well, it's not really a mundane thing. Vladimir Putin is about to attend his first multilateral forum uh, as we record this and not attend. He'll be doing it by Zoom because the Chinese aren't welcoming anybody, but he will be on a screen, a Zoom call like this one with uh, Xi Jinping this week. 
So I think that they are playing their cards very close to their chest. They want this to have an expeditious conclusion. And in the meantime, they're not going to get directly involved, but will take every opportunity that the conflict presents them. And where the rubber probably hits the road on this, in my view, you may have a different, different view as well, is if the U.S. decides to try and put real secondary sanctions in place, right? Right. A la Iran. So the your viewers will know what I mean by secondary sanctions. It's not yeah, well, the whole thing with, with Meng Wanzhou uh, basically being detained in Canada was a result of secondary sanctions, correct? Absolutely. Right. Um, sort of. I mean, I'm sure it was a result of many things. Many uh, things, yeah. <laughs> this is a very large oversimplification. But I, I think the, the key point for people listening to absorb is that, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who've been doing this for a very, very long time. Uh, a person who used to read George W. Bush's daily brief, daily intelligence brief to him. Uh, and I asked him, his name is David Gordon, he used to be the chief economist at the CIA and uh, had a bunch of different similarly uh, important roles in the American national security apparatus. And I asked him at the, the very beginning of this, where do you rate what we're going through in terms of a geopolitical disruption or crisis? And he said, uh, probably an 8.5 at a time. Hmm. And Which is pretty strong. Yeah, and I said, can you contextualize that? He said, it's the worst thing since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Huh. This was on day two. And I, I think we're just beginning to absorb through these kinds of bilateral, multilateral realignments, supply chain disruption, food security disruption, energy disruption, all of this happening, happening with the steady hum of climate change in the background at precisely the time we need nations and state states and leaders to be working together to solve the mother of all common problems that we're going in the opposite direction and that we are headed there anyway that's been our view you know the g0 thesis well um that's been our view as a firm for a long time but this is a a mighty accelerant and we're just beginning to feel the consequences of it so I'm aware that you have a limited time to spend with us today. I guess what I would like to kind of maybe finish up are, are really kind of just two questions that maybe we could sure. take together, which would be, you know, what you're saying. Okay, so there are concerns, but globally about people aren't necessarily cheering on Russia, but they're not exactly totally pro-Ukraine either, which is which is understandable. What about the Western alliance? Is this, given all the problems you've discussed, the cost of living energy, is this something that's going to be sustainable in your perspective going forward? Or, or what is it that you're going to be looking for? And then the all-important Canadian angle, which is what are the takeaways for Canada as a result? Yeah, those are great questions. I, very I, easy questions. So yeah, you're welcome. Questions. This thing is so complicated that we have limited ourselves to six month forecasts at Eurasia Group and our most probable scenario, which I think is is widely shared in the community, is that we're looking at a long protracted war where the Ukrainians will never give up their country. The first line of the Ukrainian national anthem, as my grandmother taught me, is Ukraine is not yet dead. They will, that is literally the first line of the Ukrainian national anthem. They will, right. not, they will not give up and there will be sufficient resourcing to keep up this fight. And you could argue, some believe, I'm not sure, have a strong, have high conviction on either side of this argument, but there are some who believe that the Americans, that's actually what they want. They want a 
uh, Russia occupied by a neighbor and bleeding out of resources over time. I'm not, I'm not sure I subscribe to that, but I can see why some people believe that's in the geopolitical interest in the United States. So that I think is what we're looking at. And in the face of that, if you're a student of the history of warfare and the ability for governments to maintain popular support for conflict, you have to ask yourself some tough questions, which is in this scenario in particular, where we're not directly, quote unquote, involved in the way that we have been in past conflicts, how do you maintain the public's sympathy and empathy for the plight of Ukraine, especially in a scenario where Russia starts to limit its war? The consequences are more broadly felt on basic staples like food and energy. And there's wavering within the alliance amongst political actors. So I think that that combined with the first point I made at the beginning, which I think is the most important, what do the Americans do in all of this? Which I think is a very, very open question if there's a Trump or Trump-like president in 2024. It's hard to predict. I'd lived through three years where we woke up and saw that the Canadian aluminum sector was declared a national security threat to the United States. Anything can happen. These Section days. 232. Section 232. Section two, we did a whole podcast it's, on it. Yeah. So you can go back. PTSD to even think about it. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that, well, I know that that kind of effective effort can't withstand the withdrawal of its most significant member. The most important thing about what does all this mean for Canada and therefore what does it all mean for the overall effort in NATO is that Canada cannot replace the United States in a military alliance. That's just, it's absurd to think about it. I think our most important role in the short term is to keep the Americans engaged in this. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this. I feel like this podcast could go on for three weeks. There's just so much I, I just want to unpack, but uh, perhaps that means I can persuade you to come on uh, again yeah, sometime sure. soon. Happy to Great. help in any way I can, Steph. That's awesome. Thank you so much and cheers. You too.